Welcome to episode two of the WASB Connection podcast. My name is Dan Linehan, and this episode features two conversations with speakers at the 2020 State Education Convention. Both speakers will talk about how they think education needs to change so that young people are prepared for life after high school. We'll start with Dr. David Schuler. He's the National and Illinois Superintendent of the Year. He'll be leading a pre-convention workshop on Tuesday, January 21st about college, career, and life readiness. Then we'll talk to Thursday keynote speaker, Dr. Yang Zhao. Thank you, Dr. Schuler, for joining us on this podcast. It's an honor to be here, Dan. I've read that you started your career in Wisconsin, in Waukesha. Could you tell me a little bit about how you became a superintendent? Yeah, of course. I'd love to tell you about my professional journey. I started out as a teacher in Waukesha at the middle school and high school level. And, and then I spent a couple years over at Franklin on the south side of Milwaukee, being the athletic and activities director for the middle school and the high school. A great opportunity to become the principal at Marshall High School outside of Madison. I became the superintendent in Marshall, uh, was there for three years, and then moved up to Stevens Point and uh, was a superintendent up there for three years before uh, moving down here to Illinois, where I've been for the last 15. Your district there is comprised of six high schools, is that right? We have six comprehensive high schools, and then we have a specialized high school that houses four alternative school programs. Oh, great, thank you. Could you give us a a broad overview of what Redefining Ready is? Yeah, you know, in all of my time in Wisconsin with the wonderful teachers, administrators, and school board members, you know, it really cemented in me the fact that our kids are more than a score and we need to prepare them to live in a world that's going to reinvent itself several times over our kids' work experiences and work lives. And so I was so sick and tired of people defining schools by a letter grade or by a score, uh, we looked at the research and said, what does the research actually say about what it means to be college, career, and life ready? We came up with these redefining ready metrics that are now in place across the country. I've read that you help students select a potential career and give them opportunities to explore that while in high school. How has this helped high schoolers who might not be certain about their career or future beyond high school? Dan, our kids cannot dream what they cannot see. And so it's imperative upon us as school administrators, teachers, to plant new dreams in the minds of our kids. And so for us, we want our students dreaming beyond high school, but so many of them can only dream their current context. Mm. And so if you have pockets of poverty in your school or your district, you know, in a lot of cases, those individuals are working two or three jobs, their families are working two or three jobs just to make the house payments or their, their apartment bills. And so for us, we really want our kids to have an opportunity while they're with us to explore a future they cannot yet imagine. And so that's what we do in District 214. Our students select a career area of interest by the end of their sophomore year. And it's not that I'm suggesting that kids should decide what they want to do with the rest of their life. I want our kids thinking about that pathway to their future and seeing how high school is relevant and engaging with their future life and finding out not only what they want to do and what they're interested in, but what they're not interested in. Sure. Like if our kids go to college and they don't waste three years and change their major, that is a huge win, (laughs) you know? 
And so we always say all the time, look, if you do an external workplace learning experience and find out that that's not what you want to pursue for the rest of your life, that's a huge fail forward. And we encourage that in District 214. I think it makes a lot of sense to say that a student is more than a, a number or a, a score. But of course, for colleges and, and ultimately families, these scores are probably still pretty important. So how have you worked to kind of reassure folks that this emphasis wouldn't take away from those more traditional measurements of readiness? Yeah, that's a great question, Dan. And we understand that ACT and SAT scores create the door that can be opened to provide access to colleges and post-secondary opportunities, but it shouldn't be our only area of focus. And so what we've said with our board, and our board is super supportive of our Redefining Ready movement, is we don't want to solely focus on test scores. Yes, we need to focus on the skills necessary for our students to do fine on an assessment, but we shouldn't only be focused on teaching to a test. And when so many states have set up accountability systems where schools are graded and districts and boards are graded on a test, that can become the sole focus of that entire operation and all the energy related to education. And it just can't be that way. Because if we want to stay the greatest global economy the world has ever seen, why would we ever want to create a generation of graduates with the exact same skill set, the ability to take a test well? You mentioned that students pick a career pathway by the end of their sophomore year. So how does this look from the student perspective? Do they take special classes with that pathway? Do they pursue maybe other experiential opportunities? So we have built over time, and this is not something you do overnight, but we've built over time 44 different career pathways for our students based on the labor market needs of our community. And so in all of those 44 pathways, we have orientation courses that students have an opportunity to take. And then after that orientation course, then they would have a series of additional courses that they can choose to take that will lead to an industry credential, dual credit, college credit, early college credit, and a workplace learning experience. And so we run around 2,700 external workplace learning experiences every year. So we guarantee every student in our district we'll have the opportunity to have an external workplace learning experience before they graduate. I'm guessing that healthcare comprises one or more of those pathways. What are some of the experiences or credentials or opportunities that a student interested in a healthcare career might have in one of your high schools? That's a great question, Dan. And uh, actually, healthcare was one of our first pathways that we built out because that was one of the greatest labor needs in our community. So a student would take an orientation course, probably their freshman, second semester freshman year, first semester sophomore year. Then the next course they would take is medical terminology, which is kind of a foundation course for anyone that's going to get in the medical field. That is a early college credit course, a dual credit course that we have with our local community college. And then depending on their area of interest, they may join our medical academy, which is designed more for our students that want to become doctors. Or they can pursue our CNA, LPN, RN track, which obviously is for people that are not looking at being doctors but still really interested in the medical field. They'll do a, their first external workplace learning experience the end of their junior year or perhaps between their junior year and senior year. And then depending on their specific area of interest, they would take another early college class senior year. They might go to a middle college experience where we have 25 students at our local community college three days a week as full-time college students. 
They can earn almost their CNA when they're with us. They need to do a few more clinical hours after they're 18 in order to finish that off. But most of them have all the coursework done. Sure. They just need to finish up the clinical hours after that senior year. And actually, one of our challenges is because our students are having all these experiences, we have a number of nursing homes, rehabilitative service centers that after the kids are doing their workplace learning experiences, they're offering them jobs because they're so high quality. And yet we want them to finish, obviously, uh, you know, high school and earn and uh, pursue a post-secondary experience. So that's a really, really interesting and uh, a fun challenge for us to navigate. Sure. So it's a kind of a a good problem to have. They're in demand, but you don't want them to forego other opportunities because they're offered a job. So it's kind of balancing those different priorities. Exactly. So how could a board support a superintendent or other staff who are looking to move in this direction? Advice I would give to school boards are twofold. One, encourage your superintendent to try new things, to innovate, and to to fail forward with their work. One of those things that my school board has always done is said, look, if you're always succeeding, you're not pushing the envelope hard enough. We should be able to innovate, try things, realize that not everything is going to work perfectly, and then step back, recalibrate, and move forward again to take your school and our students to even higher levels of excellence. And so I think that's really critical. And then I think the second piece is your community knows that your kids are on track to be the next generation of leaders and individuals who are going to grow an economy. We need them to have the skill set to do that. And yeah, a test is important, but it can't be the sole focus of all the work you're doing because no school board member is out there touting an ACT score, an SAT score. They're talking about the awards that kids are winning. They're talking about the amazing fine and performing arts, the incredible athletic programs, how awesome their FFA is. Those are real human stories board members love to share out in the community. And so to provide some support to a superintendent and principals who may want to really embrace that journey, it's just so critical that they give them that freedom and that license to lead. And as you say that, it strikes me that this approach might bring some opportunities to get students more engaged, right? Because the answer to that question of when will I need to do this is more apparent to them, perhaps. Oh, hands down. And, you know, what we always talk about is in 214, kids don't go from class to class to class, thinking as each class is being different. Every class is part of that journey to their post-secondary success. So they see relevancy in the work that they're doing. And as a result, since we've embarked on this journey, attendance has skyrocketed, discipline has plummeted, you know, and you just take those two things in and of themselves. And it says, you know, like, look, our, our kids are awesome if they understand the reason why they're in our school. And this really unleashed the talents of our staff. I mean, we have an incredible teaching staff in District 214, and I think for a long time, the joy was sucked out of teaching when we were focused solely on a test. So to be able to say, dream about a pathway and then build it and let's see what happens. And as a result of that, you know, we've got classes in app development and web page and website development. It's awesome. And I understand that due to the size of schools, not every school can do all the pathways, right. but every school district can do at least one or two based on the economic and labor needs of your community. Regarding your pre-conventional workshop on Tuesday, January 21st, what will your talk be about? 
Yeah, so we'll start talking about the overall concept of redefining ready, share some of the research, but not get into the weeds on it, but provide opportunities for uh, individuals or participants, attendees to be able to access all the research because it's all open source. We want everybody to see the research if they want to look at it. And then get into the weeds and talk about this is how you can actually get started and implement the workplace learning experiences. And here's a toolkit for you to work with industry partners. Or here are some steps as it relates to building a pathway from an orientation course up through a post-secondary early college experience. Here's how you can have conversations with your higher ed institutions about providing kids early college credit while they're still in high school. The 30,000 foot level, not get into the weeds on the research because no attendee is going to love that. But then this is how you can actually operationalize it in a school and how you can get started. That makes sense. Thank you. You bet. Well, thanks so much for making time this morning and joining us on the podcast. We, we really appreciate it. Oh, not a problem, Dan. It was a, it was a great conversation. As we're focusing on the convention this episode, we thought we'd sit down with Dan Rossmiller, the Director of Government Relations here at the WASB. Welcome, Dan. Glad to be here. So, convention is just a few weeks away. Are you excited? I am. I am. This, just this morning, I heard the song playing in, in a store I was at, the most wonderful time of the year, and it made me think not only of Christmas, but of convention. It's a great opportunity for us to, to meet with our members. You know, many members have families, they have jobs, they're busy um, this gives them a chance to to focus for a few days in a row on school board activities, learning activities, and helping to govern and set the direction for the association. So it's a, it's a great time. So I understand there's a number of governmental advocacy and legislative events at convention that you and your colleague Chris will be, be leading. Is that right? Yeah, I, I want to focus on a few of them. We try very hard to make first-time convention attendees and first-time delegates to our delegate assembly comfortable with the process. So Tuesday evening, actually the night before the convention officially begins, we have a pre-delegate assembly discussion session for first-time delegates and others who want to get a preview of the resolutions that will come before the delegate assembly. We have our parliamentarian there who explains the rules of the delegate assembly, it's an opportunity for people to get their questions answered about the resolutions. We don't debate the resolutions there. We save that for the delegate assembly. Okay. But that's our first kickoff. So that is what time Tuesday evening? Uh, that begins at 7 p.m. in the Crystal Ballroom of the Milwaukee Hilton Hotel. The ballroom's located on the fifth floor. For those of our members who aren't familiar with the delegate assembly, what is it and what are these resolutions? Well, the Delegate Assembly is a meeting that happens once a year in conjunction with the state convention, and it's an opportunity for our members to vote on resolutions brought forward by individual boards. Each board gets to choose a delegate to vote at the Delegate Assembly. Delegates are allowed to debate. They can amend the resolutions. They can argue for and against the resolutions. Those resolutions really set the policy direction for our association with regard to legislative matters and other advocacy activities that we engage in. And so this is really an opportunity for the members to have their say. It's a fair process, I believe. Every board gets the same number of delegates. It doesn't matter whether you're Montello or Madison, you get the same vote at the convention and encourage people to take it seriously. Your vote is your voice in the association. 
Okay. So when you and Chris are at the Capitol, the positions here determine whether you're for or against a bill. Is that right? Yes, we use those both in setting our legislative agenda along with the board of directors who helps us do that and in deciding whether we will support or oppose individual pieces of legislation. The the resolutions really set the direction for us. They are, in essence, our marching orders. So I understand on Wednesday morning you have a first-time delegate session. Could you tell me about that? Yeah, we have a special orientation session Wednesday from 8 to 9. It'll be held in Ballroom AB of the Wisconsin Center, and that is the same room where the delegate assembly is held. We will highlight the procedures used in the delegate assembly to make sure everybody's comfortable. We'll show people how the voting keypads work, and we will also talk about the convention itself. This is not just for first-time delegates. It's also for first-time convention attendees to provide them with an orientation for the convention. So we'll talk about probably some people you'll be interviewing as part of this podcast, our keynote speakers, what some of the big attractions are, things that will help people to get the most out of their experience at the convention. And you have a legislative update breakout session as well, is that right? Yeah, Friday morning, right before the governor speaks, we will be doing a a legislative update where we'll talk about current legislation, what the outlook is for bills that we both support and oppose, and what the likelihood of things passing or not passing is. So you know that the governor is coming on Friday, is that right? That's right. We just received confirmation that Governor Evers will be addressing the convention. The WSB has a long and proud tradition of inviting governors to address our convention, and and thankfully they have accepted the invitation. I would expect that uh, Governor Evers will amplify or elaborate on a lot of the themes that he will be talking about earlier that week in his State of the State address. Sounds good. Thanks for sitting down. We're talking to Yang Zhao, a keynote speaker at our 2020 State Education Convention. Could you tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to be at the University of Kansas? I grew up and was educated in China, and I taught in China as well. And 1992, I actually came to the U.S., got my master's degree and PhD. Then afterwards, I went on to Michigan State University, and then I went to the University of Oregon as a presidential chair as well as Associate Dean for Global and Online Education. I was there for five years before I came to the University of Kansas about three years ago. And you've written a lot of books. How many are you at now? Well, probably near about 40 different kinds of books. So I understand at the convention in Milwaukee, you'll be focusing on what works may hurt, side effects in education. Is that right? Yes. So... The general concept is that, of course, in medicine, we have side effects from an upset stomach from Advil to serious side effects like birth defects from thalidomide. Could you summarize what this concept means in terms of education side effects? Well, I think, you know, this is a simple idea, but seldom explored in education. That is, when something does good, it is going to come with some cost. Because in education, you know, we've been pursuing the agenda said what works for a long time. Really, since no child left behind, we've been going after something called evidence-based practices, evidence-based policymaking, which is actually a very good movement. However, if you look at medicine, how medicine advanced, 
they do not only look at evidence, they also look at evidence of damage, hmm. of adverse effects, which are unintended or, or unexpected uh, side effects that goes when it does damage. So in education, which you know we have always been asking to find practices or policies that deliver the effects, but very seldom we are concerned about what damages they may do. But in education, however, it does do that. I would use the example. Lots of times a reading program might improve test scores, but could at the same time make your children hate reading forever. And as you noted, another example is No Child Left Behind and a side effect there might be narrowing of the curriculum or anxiety about the test. Right now, you know, under No Child Left Behind, when we were focusing on improving results in reading and math and through standardized testing, and then the result is a narrowed curriculum. Also deprivation of opportunities for children to engage in arts, music, sports, even science. Those are important outcomes as well. So No Child Left Behind also because of its so-called accountability measures has resulted in demoralized teachers and teaching and narrowed teaching to the test. I'd also like to talk about the fourth chapter of your book in which you describe East Asian educational methods. Do you think that though they might do well on international scores, that some of these systems might fail to prepare students for the real world when there's no test around to motivate them? In education, the strategies raising test scores might come at the cost of creativity and curiosity, also might come at the homogenization of the talents. That's why you look at East Asian countries, China, Japan, Korea, Singapore, they might look very, very good in terms of standardized test scores, but we know for sure if you examine carefully, these countries have been working very hard to reform their education systems because they noticed that the side effects have included, for example, the lack of creativity and all the lack of entrepreneur thinking and also the diversity of talents, innovation, but also sacrifices the students' well-being. Mm. That is, students have a high level of anxiety, depression, and the data would show that these countries have high test scores but their students' well-being is much lower. That is why I think we, when we think about education, we need to think about what are we going after? You know, do we want high test scores and lower creativity, lower curiosity, and uh, less healthy children? Or do we just want a well-balanced education when test scores may not be that important? It also occurs to me that there's another connection here with Chapter 4, in that you cite research describing that China's test-focused system, which had been around for many hundreds of years, might have been behind its failure to adapt to the Industrial Revolution, and we might be in a similar era now. Do you think that history might be repeating itself in that way? Precisely. I actually think America is very much in danger of repeating that. Since in over the last well, almost three decades now, America has been trying to narrow its curriculum trying to pursue an outcome that's outdated and trying to make sure our children as homogenized as possible, standardized as possible, we might miss be missing the boat. This country has really, I think, lost about three decades of opportunities to invent the future. We have been going backwards. So on a related note, I wanted to ask you a little bit about direct instruction, which you describe in detail in the book. And that just refers to a, a term for teaching using lectures and, and demonstrations. And as you describe, data 
back from 1977 showed that this approach had outperformed every other one in terms of test scores, but it didn't measure everything that teachers and parents care about. And you describe research showing that it may have had side effects like issues with abstract thinking and creativity. Could you talk about what some consequences of that might have been? That's very appropriate because right now, I think in the state of Wisconsin, many schools are pushing for direct instruction in reading and math because it looks like short term, you'll gain uh, efficiency. Like you direct tell the children what to do, they remember it and they do it and looks fast, looks quick. But actually, the damage comes in, you know, after a few years, once you move to a comprehension, which relies on a lot more knowledge. And so decoding does not translate into comprehension. So you may look at a first year, children seem to be making progress, showing assessment because you're testing simple mechanical skills. But then the long term, you actually lose. Another, of course, direct instruction can cause problems is that children lose interest in the content, in, in reading. Reading actually itself should be engaging, but when you really parse that into mechanical letter recognition, again, it looks like you're making progress, but students said, okay, well, this is boring. You know, they're not engaged in the content in a meaningful reading. Okay, so we've kind of treaded over this long-running dispute over reading instruction, of course, between balanced literacy and phonics. Uh-huh. What do you think this concept of side effects could tell us about perhaps finding a middle ground between these approaches? Well, I don't think it's necessarily a middle ground in many ways. It is really individualized. Different children will need different kind of instruction in different contexts. For example, if I ask you to memorize a phone number, I mean, there's no reason for you to use discovery inquiry-based uh, methods. You just go, yeah, just remember that thing. Right. However, if you want children to have a a long-term engagement, you know, I wouldn't definitely abandon this, uh, you know, the direct instruction uh, approach. But also, children at different times with different tasks. I think it's uh, it, it's really important to understand that uh, we might use sometimes a direct instruction, but be very mindful of what damage it can cause. My overall idea is, is to expose these effects and side effects to policymakers, you know, to teachers, to parents to understand. What are you looking for? Looking for long-term, I call educational outcomes for children, for society, or for a community. That is, we want more diverse talents, more creative talents, more talents who are caring about others. Our listeners are largely school board members. So what advice do you have for policymakers who may still be interested in those test scores, but are also concerned about some of these other side effects? Well, I think, you know, for, for school board members, I think, I think they're a very powerful group of people. I think they need to understand. I hopefully I can help them in this issue about what outcomes matter, you know, what really matters in the future. Is it because just we can measure something? Is that what we need to think about the future to expand the definition of educational outcomes? Because policymakers do, I think, influence measurement, influence assessment, the whole teachers and uh, uh, school leaders accountable for the right kind of outcomes. So I, I would like to send a message that uh, education for the future needs a new set of outcomes. And right now, they, uh, most of the educational policies and practices that try to drive up student test scores is actually working against us in preparing our children for the future. That's interesting. So, of course, what we measure has a huge effect on what our incentives are. And it sounds like that maybe instead of just test scores, other measurements might be 
is that student going to be a happy adult? Are they going to have a career that they're successful at and that they enjoy? Are those some of the other kind of measurements you think might be important? Precisely. I think we just need to look at different sets of evidence to say what actually matters. You know, it's a, we want to measure what matters. You know, we want to look at not only what we can measure, but what we should be measuring. And even if we don't have the right measures now, we should be looking at, okay, other outcomes. Again, like student health, a healthy human being, psychologically healthy, physically healthy, that matters. A person who understands a sense of community, understands mm, interdependence, sure. that matters, right? Uh, a student who is uh, creative and curious, who is adventurous, that matters, right? So I think there are many, many other things that matters, but we have no ready-made measures. So we kept going after these outcomes. Well, thanks so much, Dr. Zhao, for joining us on the podcast. Thank you, Dan. I'm just looking forward to sharing this message in more detail with the audience. I'm looking forward to interacting with the great policymakers in education in the state of Wisconsin. Dr. Zhao will be the Thursday keynote speaker for the 2020 State Education Convention. He'll take the stage at the Wisconsin Center at 3 p.m. In addition, his talk will be recorded for the Virtual Attendee Access Program. We'll include some details about that program in our show notes. The next episode will be full of sounds from the convention. So if you see me running around with the microphone, hope you'll stop over and say hello. I hope to see you there. <laughs>